0: This is a Radio.com original.
1: This is Coronavirus Daily World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios here in Los Angeles.
2: And I'm Mike Simpson. Here to talk about the global coronavirus pandemic a lot of european countries were considered models of what to do with this they locked down citizens went along without much of a fuss but now cases are rising again the increase comes as things are opening back up there so will the countries go back to the lockdowns or will they try something different
1: When it comes to public health and the economy, does the economy have to always win?
2: We have one of the country's leading infectious disease experts to talk about the recent developments when it comes to a vaccine and the distribution plans for the vaccine.
1: Cities across the country, they have implemented fines for not wearing masks in public. But... Are the mask requirements any good if there's no real enforcement?
2: Doctors saying get that flu shot. They're warning about the possibility of a second coronavirus surge and the flu being together. So we'll tell you why that shot is so important.
1: The Jewish New Year coming up, we will look into how
2: Rosh Hashanah will be celebrated in the middle of a pandemic. Let's start with Europe and the new wave. Dr. Eric Fagelding is an epidemiologist and health economist at the Harvard Chan School of Public Health. So, Dr., Uh, Is this a surprise that when things open back up, the virus comes back?
3: Oh, well, the roaring back part is completely up to them in terms of other containment. Like, it, you know, some people say, well, it doesn't work. Lockdowns do work in terms of slowing down the epidemic. But then once you lift up the floodgates, then the floodwaters will come back in. It's about what containment measures. And the lockdowns, is the most one of the most extreme and obviously as everyone says they want to avoid it but you can't just you know have frat parties again just like we're seeing a lot of college uh colleges once we reopen it's about the choices you make in addition to that do you, is there enough mask wearing is there good ventilation all these other policies
2: you know, they say never read the comments, but if you go in the comments of some of these articles, you will see people saying, well, you know, Europe did this, and now it's coming back, so this doesn't work. We just got to open up and make the best of it and learn to live with it. But, you know, you just said it's not that case. It's about throttling up, throttling down, because the virus is going to be pernicious. This is what it was going to do anyways, right? Yeah,
3: exactly. The virus will virus. It, it You can't just wish it away. Uh-uh. At the end of the day, it's really these policies. You know, I think uh, school reopenings is really risky, especially if they don't wear masks. And it's all, all ludicrous. People in Asia hear that people in the West are reopening schools without masks, and it's the most insane thing. It's it's almost suicide, uh, what some of our policies are to them, right? in terms of like how shocked they are. And similarly, uh, restaurants, indoor dining is incredibly dangerous. I'm um, all for outdoor dining or open air dining, but indoor dining, when you don't wear masks and talk loudly, and in bars, it's just the recipe for disaster. Uh, if you just go back to our old ways.
1: But I, I can see, I suppose, why some people uh, and and you know, Mike was just alluding to that. In this country, they say, look, uh, Europe, they they did a lot of the stuff that we didn't want to do. They closed things down more severely. They were much more restrictive in activities. They thought they had it beat. And so what's the point? And I think that's the the attitude that a lot of people in this country have right now is what's the point no matter what we do? People are going to get it. Some people are going to get sick. Some people are going to die. And some people are not going to have any symptoms. And that's just the way it is.
4: Yeah, it's
3: about you can't return to full normality. Uh, this, what's the point issue is that you know if you didn't do it and the fire is really really raging, it would be the wildfire will be raging even faster, and then that's the thing that people don't see. The, you put in the lockdown to put out the uh, to slow down the fastest fire burning. That and this is why you know you dig trenches, you, you drop water on these wildfires. You know, I'm making an analogy to slow them down or else they would burn even more. And you don't want to do it normally, but trust me, we know from lots of experience now, they work, but you, can't, you, can't, you have to back it up. You can't just do it in isolation. And this is why a lot of people are saying, well, I'm too lazy to, to do it once we're done uh, to adopt these little safety measures like distancing and not going to bars and wearing masks. And that's just ludicrous. It's this virus will virus unless you do all of the above. It's like a why you can't play whack-a-mole with this. You have to whack all the moles and um, keep all the bulkheads shut off and clamped down. And that's what we kind of have to do. We can't let off the, or, or, or off the brakes. It's a downhill thing with the
2: virus just being the virus. Dr. Eric Fagelding, epidemiologist, uh, health economist, mm-hmm. Harvard Jan School of Public Health. Doctor, thanks.
1: The pushers are getting stronger to reopen much of the economy. Movie theaters in many parts are open again. Gyms are starting to open and football is back.
2: But there are concerns that reopening businesses and play in sports can further the spread of the virus. In the end, does the economy always win? Because it can seem like it. Christopher Thornburg is a founding partner of L.A.-based Beacon Economics. So, Chris, should the economy be winning?
4: Well, I'm going to push back on the initial premise, uh, this idea that it's the virus versus the economy. Um, Look, when it comes to conversations about public policy, the conversation should really be about cost-benefit analysis. When you talk about, for example, here in the state of California, telling restaurants they can't have people indoors, Obviously, that has economic consequences for the people who work in those restaurants, for the people who own those restaurants, and as well as the people who want to eat at those restaurants. Now, the question is, does that actually help reduce the number of cases? I mean, look, I, I get it. We, we could tell everybody, go stay in your house and you're not allowed to leave home for two weeks, period. And, and the presumption is, is, is maybe we would get rid of it. But, of course, at, at God knows what cost, given that if people were locked down for two weeks, there would be all sorts of calamities. We don't make that kind of decision. So it's, as opposed to saying it's one versus the other, the real question is, do the efforts we put into place really actually make a big difference from a cost, from a, from a sort of a health cost perspective? From my perspective, for example, the state has never made the, the case that closing restaurants has actually done much to reduce the transmission of the, of, of the COVID-19 as opposed to, say, just making sure people wear their masks and wash their hands.
2: But everybody's got a lane, right? And if the health officials and the scientists tell me that indoor spread is going to be way worse, and that's why we have to keep the restaurants closed for the indoor dining, then I'm going to trust them, right? And maybe it's not economy versus health, but they are linked. You're not going to get the full so, economy oh, oh, without oh, the they, virus.
4: Oh, absolutely. But but see, that that's my problem, right? A lot of folks have just said this, but, but they're saying it without what I would call concrete data to support that. In fact, we have plenty of data to suggest the opposite. Uh, take a look at places place like Japan or Sweden. Um, Japan was a third country that uh, saw cases of COVID-19. Japan has never had a major surge of the case, despite the fact that the people there live in very crowded conditions. Why? And, and the government never closed things down. Why? Because over there, people practice personal hygiene on a fairly regular basis. Wearing masks in, in Asia... Is a very common thing to do even before COVID-19 was around. And as a result, they never really had a problem. Same thing in Sweden. Sweden never closed down their economy. And oh, I remember everybody wagged their fingers at Sweden and said, oh, you're terrible. However, I tell you what, the number of cases in Sweden really hasn't been much larger than other places in Europe. And Sweden seems to be done with the virus, whereas well, in other parts of Europe, where they shut everything down, well, there's new cases arising.
1: Yeah, actually, though, that that's not entirely true. Uh, Sweden itself has admitted that its experiment in keeping things open didn't <laughs> didn't work out the way it had hoped. And in <laughs> fact, no, they did. No, no, they did. Well, <laughs> let me finish. Yeah. Well, and and also their infection rate was considerably higher. Than other Scandinavian countries. It was considerably higher than Denmark. It was considerably higher than uh, Norway. It was considerably higher than even Iceland. Uh, And so
4: I I will, I appreciate that. And it was still considerably lower than England and considerably lower than Spain. And as already noted, they don't have a reemergence of new cases the way that France and Spain are dealing with right now. Ultimately, it may turn out that they made the right decision, perhaps closing the economy down doesn't actually get rid of this virus. It simply delays the inevitable. It, it, this is complicated, but it isn't as easy as economy versus health. We have to make very specific decisions. And the evidence suggests that just shutting down the economy willy-nilly hasn't done much to get rid of the virus and ultimately has done a tremendous amount of economic harm, which in turn does hurt people as well.
2: Christopher Thornburg, founding partner, Beacon Economics.
1: President Trump claims that 100 million vaccine doses would be available before the end of the year. Is that realistic? And how is distribution going
2: to actually work? Please take a ticket and wait in line. Huh, yeah. Dr. Michael Ulsterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. He answers those questions and more with KCBS's Stan Bunger.
5: Well, obviously, we're on a journey with this virus. And unfortunately, uh Right now, I have to say that we are looking at the possibility of a major increase in cases coming into the fall. Uh, As you may recall, uh, in that time period of of March-April, we saw case numbers increasing, with particularly the uh, house on fire situation in New York City, metropolitan area. And uh, we were at 32,000 cases for what was thought to be the, you know, this is as bad as it's going to get. And then case numbers dropped down to 22,000 cases per day, uh, around Memorial Day, but then we opened up and the fatigue set in. Uh, we got uh, the urge to build, go out and be with lots of people, and we saw the case numbers uh, rise dramatically to 67,000 cases a day in late July. Again, put some breaks on it, uh, particularly in the hot, hardest-hit areas. Case numbers came down to now what is the mid to high 30s, but now with the opening of colleges, universities, high schools, and going into the cold weather season where we're going to be Uh, having a lot more exposure in indoor air settings where transmission is enhanced, I think we're going to see case numbers increase substantially. It will be months yet before we actually see any impact of vaccine, despite a lot of the rhetoric. I think it won't be until sometime early to mid-next year before we really see the impact of vaccine, if we're to have it at all.
1: And I'm curious about, uh, you know, your take on on the uh, contact tracing, the ability to find cases once we know where the first case is. Have we gotten any better at that?
5: Um, The challenge with contact tracing is that it's not just can you do it or can't you do it. It's also the conditions on the ground. What I mean by that is the amount of virus transmission that's occurring in your given area at a time. Uh, You know, when you have major transmission going on and you have, you know, hundreds to thousands of cases in a in a given geographic region, it's kind of like trying to plant your petunias in a Category 5 hurricane. It doesn't <laughs> work well. And so one of the challenges that we've had is, is that, uh, you know, a, a lot of the contact tracing efforts have been uh, really focused on that really hot area when it doesn't work nearly as well. And so I think that, that we're still learning a lot about contact tracing. You know, we as a group at our center had published a document on the challenges of contact tracing uh, some months ago, raising issues that would be, in fact, uh, a deterrence to really having a robust, successful program, and I think that's still the case. So I would say the response on contact tracing is mixed at best, uh, and surely it has had some impact in some areas, but as a national strategy, I don't think we've, been able to really demonstrate that it's had a big impact.
1: Dr. Michael Osterholm is director of the Center for Infectious Disease Research and Policy at the University of Minnesota. Let's talk about masks again, since people seem to have very strong opinions about them. Cities across the country have mask requirements and are promising fines if people do not wear them in public, but not many people are actually being ticketed.
2: So Berkeley, California, in the Bay Area, has a strict mask enforcement idea. It's promising $100 fines for anybody caught without a mask, and they say they're going to be much tougher than other places. Kate Harrison is a Berkeley City Councilwoman. So $100 for not wearing a mask, yeah?
6: Yeah, on Tuesday night, we passed the application of civil penalties for people that repeatedly don't wear masks with a focus on large gatherings.
7: Um, we're
6: not going after that one person that forgot to put their mask on when they went out to their front garden. We're looking at uh, events, people in parks in large groups, student parties, et cetera, um, where we've had some difficulty with people wearing masks. Um, this is just another thing in our toolkit. We have posters up throughout the city. We have a lot of educational pieces happening. We have pretty good compliance with masks, but we have a few people that are refusing to wear the masks and they're risking everyone's lives.
1: Well, you know, the thing is that, that, as you know, there are a whole bunch of places that have on the books ordinances about wearing masks and some places that have uh, on the books, in theory, large fines to be imposed for people who don't. And then, you know, we've checked with the number as the months have gone by. And usually the answer is, well, we wrote a few. We're not really out to punish people. We're really here to, to inform people. The bottom line is that enforcement seems to be pretty much non-existent. So why are you going to be different?
6: Ah, Well, I don't think that's true. I think what you'd find here and in those other locations is all of our ordinances have a warning first. So when they say, we haven't issued many citations, that's because people have gone and talked to people, they've given them an oral warning and an opportunity to fix the situation, and they've issued a written warning as well. So the citations are limited because people have already been talked to many times. And usually we finally get compliance after that.
2: Do you keep track, though? I mean, if there's somebody that you've had conversations with or want. I I mean, I can say, yes, uh, officer, I will put on this mask and I'll round the corner and then I whip it off.
6: Like, are you going to catch me? Yeah, this is the reason we're focused on large gatherings. If you imagine a fraternity party at the fraternity house or a gathering in a park of a group of people who meet there frequently, we are going to have their information. So that, that's really our focus. Again, we're not looking at that one person who happened to step outside and said, oops, forgot the mask and went back in and got it. So we will be taking people's names in these kinds of events. In May, we had a very low caseload in Berkeley, and when students started returning in July, we found that we had 45 cases in July associated with fraternity parties and that when students came to Berkeley for the new uh, terms, we had four cases of incoming students, and now we have 190. Clearly, something needs to happen.
2: Kate Harrison, Berkeley City Council member.
1: Getting a flu shot this season could keep you from getting a double smack of the flu and COVID-19. Getting one of those illnesses is bad enough, but getting both of them, possibly at the same time, is something that can wreak havoc on your body for a long time.
2: Dr. Rahul Kare is founder and CEO of Innovative Care. He talked to WBBM's Cisco Kodo about the importance of getting that flu shot.
7: If you've ever been on the fence of having the flu shot, which we all, you know, kind of had, like, oh, it doesn't affect me, I don't get the flu. This is a year to really get it. You don't want flu like symptoms and just be in fear about, is this COVID 19? Is this something else? It'd be good to just get fully um, vaccinated and um, take that out of the um, options of what you have.
0: Yeah, because this year, if that happens, your employer's probably going to tell you you have to leave for a couple of weeks.
7: Yep. They're going to tell you you're out for two weeks, which really isn't a good thing. You really want to be, uh, um, you you don't want to be in more isolation. We're already going to be inside most of the winter. Um, Might as well get to be out in a safe environment and be at work uh, or at least go to the grocery stores and do those things. And if you just had the flu, you're out for two weeks because you cannot differentiate between the influenza and COVID-19. They're the same symptoms.
0: Well, let's talk about the, the, you mentioned the, the flu, it's what we've been discussing here and people getting their shots. Uh, Talk about uh, what was it like with the Spanish flu back 100 years ago? Obviously, we didn't have the same technology. We didn't have the same medical advances. But uh, are you seeing any, any sort of similarities in the way people are reacting or the things that they should be doing?
7: Yeah, absolutely. They're very similar. um, What happens and the seasonality of it, you know, it started in around February um, in 1918, and uh, and we had a big wave, and then uh, again in November, December we had a wave that was three times as big. So um, you know, it's one of the things we're very fearful of, and it had the same kind of cytokine storm, which is you know where the um, the influenza would get into the system and our body would really um, have this um, reaction to it that was more deadly than the virus itself so it's very similar and so we have to uh, take heed of what happened back then
0: can we tell from history uh, with lockdowns i mean does that actually work getting people away from crowds and even away from people who uh, you know other than your family
7: Yes, we do know that isolating yourself does significantly bend the curve, and I think it's one of the only things we can do other than masks and uh, is to stay isolated so that um, you aren't spreading it, because we know how viruses work. We've always known that, you know, wintertime increases the viruses, not because it's really cold outside, it's really because we stay inside because it's cold um, outside and we start spreading the virus to other people. And that's the real reason of why winter has a huge surge.
0: When it comes to a vaccine, whether it is flu or otherwise, people are concerned about its safety and maybe negative side effects. They're especially talking about this, given the fact that if we get a COVID vaccine within the next few months, it would be a pretty fast timing. Uh, is there a fear of safety when it comes to vaccines?
7: Well, I mean, I think there's always a fear of anything new, and, but we, you have to realize we make vaccines every year, and so we have the technology of doing that. For, um, we have influenza vaccine, which was made about, um, you know, eight months ago. So we have this ability to do so, and, you know, COVID 19 with the coronavirus, we do know coronaviruses. They do cause other viruses. So honestly, even though there's a fear, and this is a, very big virus that has caused wreaked havoc uh, worldwide, we actually are very good at uh, making uh, vaccines. We make them very safely. Safely, We have influenza vaccines every year that has three to four strains in them. Um, We can make it safely. And so when it comes out and the CDC does its studies, I will be looking at those studies. And if it mounts a response and it has a good safety profile, I'm going to recommend it.
0: Thanks so much for all of the insight. That's Dr. Rahul Kare, founder and CEO at Innovative Care.
1: Rosh Hashanah is when families and friends get together for big dinners as they celebrate the new year on the Jewish calendar. But the whole thing is going to look a lot different this year with the pandemic spoiling what normally is a festive day.
2: It's not clear how many synagogues will actually have in-person services. Rabbi Jeffrey Myers is the leader of the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh, which is coming up on the second anniversary of the mass shooting there. Rabbi, how have the last couple of years been, and then how are you handling things now in the pandemic?
8: I would say that the last couple of years, um, certainly uh, challenging, uh, unprecedented, specifically for the Jewish community, as uh, this is the worst attack ever. uh, And the Jewish community has been present in the United States for over 350 years. Um, So we don't have a lot of history that we can reflect upon to see how other Jewish communities responded to such a horror. Um, Each day um, brings new adventures, um, opportunities uh, for people to continue to heal, um, ways to reach out uh, in gratitude to the neighbors far and wide um, who've continued to offer us support. What makes, I think, these Holy Days unique for our congregation is um, we've been now twice displaced. Uh, After the uh, massacre, Our congregation did not return to the building. We have not returned. Um, It's not a prayerful place. It's been too damaged. Soon we will be making our announcements about uh, a new campaign um, to not just rebuild, but to reinvigorate and create something really special at that site. Uh, So we've been praying at a neighboring synagogue a mile and a half down the road. That synagogue has essentially been closed since March 13th. Uh, So for my congregation, they've now been displaced twice. So They've, in many cases, been re-traumatized because of this displacement. So it's uh, it's going to be challenging.
1: Well, I was going to say, I mean, in light of the pandemic, how do you go about, how does your congregation go about celebrating the Jewish New Year?
8: Well, I, I can't say that we have any playbook on this. Um, you know, even if you read uh, reports of uh, the pandemic from n- 1918, um there's little that's been written about um, uh, how houses of worship fared. Uh, we certainly, I'd like to think, are more privileged um, 100 years later because we do have technology. We do have ways to be in touch with people that didn't exist 100 years ago. So we can reach out to people in, in unique ways and find ways to remain connected that are both um, safe as well as uh, welcoming simultaneously.
2: This is something though, even people who don't go to synagogue a lot, they still gather over these days. It's a a coming together and that's going to be obviously difficult. So do you think the temptation is there because it's been so long, it's like, I have to see my family, I've got to see some friends or is it the health has to come first and got to find a way to get through it somehow?
8: I wish I could say specifically, but I would think that uh, viewing human behavior over these past six months, uh, there will be people who uh, get it and recognize that um, to be risky with your behavior uh, can lead yourself down uh, a dangerous path. There are those people who recognize that uh, it may not still be safe, and therefore they've got to continue to do the best they can to keep themselves safe. I don't. I don't see it as much different than any other uh, normative day that we've had uh, these past six months in the United States.
1: How would you characterize, in light of the massacre and now the pandemic, the the psychological health of your congregation, and and include yourself in that evaluation?
8: I would say that if we could have a scale of a zero to one hundred. And literally like have a slot for each of those numbers I could probably place people in each of those slots Um, but that being said um, for a typical day um, you can be having a really good day and something can happen that uh, triggers uh, a memory perhaps of of October 27th and you suddenly are no longer having a good day Uh, and that's I think what I found life is like uh, on a daily basis. You just hope that day by day, if you can look from 30,000 feet and see that the trajectory is a positive one uh, moving towards healing, but under a microscope, it's more like an oscilloscope. There are high points and low points, and that's every single day.
2: Rabbi Jeffrey Myers, Congregation Leader at the Tree of Life Synagogue. Uh, Rabbi, thanks for talking to us.
1: Older people have generally been more isolated from friends and family, Since the pandemic started, surveys have found that it's taken a toll on their mental health. That has people coming up with safe ways to make sure older people get the interaction they need with others. A study founded by the European Union and Japanese government may have found the answer. Robots. The study authors found robots that can carry on conversations can positively impact the mental health of seniors in care homes. The study started before the pandemic. A culturally competent robot named Pepper was tested on residents of elderly care homes in Britain and Japan over the course of three years. Well, people who interacted with Pepper for up to 18 hours over the course of two weeks saw a significant improvement in their mental health, as well as a small but positive impact on the severity of loneliness. What does it talk about? What's a culturally competent robot?
2: Yeah. How guess... far does the knowledge go? Is this like a Jeopardy champion robot, or what are we doing with it here? I
1: don't know. I mean, I, 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 don't I would know. like
2: to find out. This will be a Google. This will be a post show Google.
1: I want a robot.
2: We can get you one. I want a robot. We'll get you a Roomba, it'll vacuum. <laughs> Listen to us on the radio.com app Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.